Well, welcome everyone to the Think Education podcast. I'm I'm Judith Lammy, and I'm here as usual with my co-host Chris Hill. And in a break from the usual tradition <laughs> of Chris uh, providing the opening uh, greeting, I'm doing it this week. I've been allowed to do it this week. It'll probably just be for the ones, quite frankly, but I'm doing my best. And Chris is going to have the uh, pleasure and delight of introducing, uh, in a little bit more detail in a moment, our special guest. Our special guest uh, today on our um, International Voices series, Bola Ibrahim. So we're absolutely delighted that Bola is joining us today to talk about all things transnational education, probably quite a lot to do with uh, Egypt, given the massive amount of knowledge and expertise uh, and experience that Bola has there, but no doubt will range across a number of other topics too. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to Chris to do the formal introduction this week. If, if this feels like a lot of pressure, this this really, <laughs> this is quite both exciting that I get to do this, um, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate, Judith, you saying this may only be one week. That's not because of what you've done. That's because of the mess I'll make of the subsequent bit. Then we'll switch back to back to the way things should be. Um, but yes, it's absolutely uh, delighted to be able to welcome uh, Bola to the podcast. Uh, um, Bola and I have had a, a few near misses about meeting up at conferences in our region um, and uh, and sort of doing the odd bit of work here and there and and activity, and so it's it's very nice to be able to to connect, um, and it's very nice to be um, uh, not trying to compete with the Welsh connection that Judith has has uh, sort of fully established. But Bowler and I at least are regional colleagues, um, if nothing else. Um, uh, I can't quite see Egypt from Dubai, but we are. I feel you know geographically closer uh, uh, to him than perhaps some of our of our previous guests. Um, uh, Abol is a, a, an educationalist with a specialisation in international higher education policy and development um, and brings with him, uh, uh, what's interesting, uh, we just got some feedback on the, uh, on the Chris, thing. you seem to have disappeared momentarily so no um, i'm, I'm still here I'm, I'm still here it was just there was a little okay, bit of feedback on the right. there we go so um yep no bol is a as a, a considerable expert in international higher education policy and development um well over a decade of experience in the egyptian higher education sector as, as judith was saying um very much a, a specialist um in there with a particular focus on uk egypt higher education work um partnerships transnational education um, and indeed, uh, a lot of the qualification um, management and delivery, which is becoming increasingly part of uh, the conversation about recognition and, uh, well, or lack thereof. Um, Ibrahim has, has consulted and, and worked for and with uh, many leading international educational organizations, such as the Education Development Trust, the McCaw Hill uh, Education, uh, American University in Cairo, the British Council, among, among many others. Uh, very well published, both internationally and locally, um, authored and co-authored book chapters and articles, including he's very, very much kind enough to uh, contribute a, a chapter to uh, our um, uh, book, uh, which will be out hopefully very soon. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that because that gives a, a lot of uh, 
of insight into the Egyptian um, international education, particularly transnational education sector. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that, obviously, in, in more, more detail. Um, and, uh, and we kind of, I think I've, I've probably said enough. He's, he's very well uh, trained, very well educated, very well published, very well situated, very well everything. And uh, it's, a, it's a joy to be able to, to talk to Bola today. Um, and so um, I think maybe maybe to start on, if you don't mind, because we've had a we've had a lot of conversation in in previous podcasts um, about uh, not uniquely the UK higher education sector, but quite often a, a focus or a connection to the the UK higher education sector, and obviously that's something you're very much linked to um, from your work in uh, in Egypt. But I'm wondering if I'm sure there will be the people listening who don't know very much about the Egyptian education sector or indeed the transnational education world in Egypt. So if you wouldn't mind, could you maybe just sort of set the context for, uh, you know, for, for what's happening and, and where we've come from um, at the moment within, within your context, if you don't mind? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so hello, uh, first of all, and thank you very much for having me. Um, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, a bit of context uh, about Egypt's higher education in general, and specifically transnational education, and the kind of connections between the UK and, and Egypt. Uh, so the sector in Egypt is quite huge. Three million students, uh, 91 universities, over 200 technical and high institutes, over 100,000 faculty members that are teaching in different universities. Um, it's quite massive, um, and it's believed to be one of the biggest in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, a lot of uh, mostly untapped uh, potential there for international partnerships, uh, but mostly the focus has been um, on the UK side. Egypt generally has a lot of sentiments to the UK, if you like, and uh, talking talking about myself, uh, where, I, where I studied English at the British Council, where I also worked at the British Council and the Foreign Office later and so on. So I've had a lot of sentiment myself to the UK, uh, uh, generally and more specific to the UK education sector. So that's how big the kind of sector uh, it is in, in, in Egypt. Uh, every year we've got about uh, 700,000 graduates out of our universities. Um, the transnational education landscape has been growing. It's not new, but it's not quite old uh, at the same time. It started about 20 years ago. So in early 2000s, uh, Egypt saw the first establishments of transnational education partnerships uh, between Egypt and France and between Egypt and Canada, and uh, quickly later between Egypt and the UK. So they, we have long-standing TNE partnerships between the two countries. I guess most of our colleagues will know this, uh, but it's worth mentioning Egypt has been constantly among the top five uh, receivers or hosts of UK TME, according to data from UKI every year. So we host, we uh, offer degrees to about 21 to 23,000 students, UK higher education degrees we're talking about here in Egypt, uh, delivered here. So that puts us in the fifth uh, largest place and the biggest in Africa, uh, um, if, if, if you compare. Of course, after China and Malaysia and other countries, but we come fifth. So we're in the top five um, there. Um, and as I said, we have had long-standing TNE partnerships, uh, 15 uh, years, some last 15 years, some 20. That puts us in a unique situation. Uh, we are there in the picture. 
um, we've had relationships and most recently uh, two uh, new partnerships have been um, concluded between Egyptian universities and uh, UK universities. One is, um, I'm not sure if I can say commercial names, but it's with uh, Coventry University and with uh, Bedfordshire University. Those were the newest uh, TNE partnerships appearing in the last few years, quite successful. Uh, people look up to it here in Egypt. The, generally, the UK higher education is, is well respected here. People look up to it. Um, it's um, it's something that people uh, would really love to uh, to engage their kids in. So parents also have this positive outlook towards it. So I hope that give, that gives you a quick overview of uh, the, the the system and so on. Uh, it does, and and I'm going to hand to Judith, who's got a question. But I I just wanted to pick up. I, I love the phrase. Um, people have sentiments about the UK. I think that's that's of both. <laughs> all flavors of that conversation yes i think that that very well sums sums it up so uh, yeah that was brilliant thank you thank you very much um Ju- judith please yeah yeah that is it's, that's a wonderful phrase that as you say it could it could um it could swing both ways in terms of a positive and possibly slightly less positive couldn't it um one okay. thing just just wanted to to um probe a little bit what you said towards the end there actually Bola but it also struck me when you were providing some of an, an overview of, of of the Egyptian higher education system because although I'm aware of it very much on the TNE landscape not least because many of the things that you've written uh, Bola but I suppose I wasn't at I haven't actually appreciated the scale of it and you know the fact that also you've got over 90 universities within the country, you know, yourselves, um, 100,000 plus, you know, faculty, etc. I mean, it's a, it's a massive industry, isn't it? And I suppose, therefore, it links into what was going to be my first question anyway, but you, you, did, you did start to, to answer it um, towards the end, was, you know, why in many ways do you think Egypt really has seemingly sort of set its sights on becoming um, a major transnational education hub. You know, I mean, you have got, obviously, China and, and Malaysia being, I guess, the, the obvious ones. Um, but it sounds as though also probably at a similar time to when Malaysia began, Egypt was as well with the, with the connections with France and Canada. But I'm really interested to learn from you um, what really has motivated, you know, the Egyptian higher education, which itself is exceptionally good and very well developed, to to look to become a TNE hub. Um, yeah, um, I, I take what you're saying about the the scale of current UK TNE uh, in Egypt compared to the size of the market. Uh, even though we're in the top five, still it's not significant compared to the size of the sector here, as you said. Uh, reasons uh, being economic, I could say, uh, because of the economic situation, especially in the last few years, if you look at the trends, numbers were going up until 2015, and then in 2016, uh, following that, we had major currency devaluations uh, almost every year or two years, and that made it quite difficult for them to afford quality education uh, like the UK actually. Uh, so the reasons are mostly economic. Um, and also I need to remind you that higher education is free in Egypt. It's not like the UK. So the, the massive 3 million uh, student population, 
out of that are in the public higher education and they don't pay, they only pay administration fees, very small amount every year, so it's almost free. Um, the entire private higher education, which makes this, the, the market for TME, um, that, uh, that, that, that amounts to about 15% of the sector only. Uh, so the huge, huge part of it is, is, uh, is, is public and is free. Going back to your question quickly on reasons that motivate universities in Egypt to engage in TNE partnerships, and some of it are public. Um, I mean, the sense of the quality. So we were looking at um, at this in a study I did a few years ago with colleagues from the American University in Cairo. Why universities in Egypt are you know uh, keen to have partnerships with these universities? We were thinking about uh, reasons related to quality. Uh, UK higher education is. For them, it's a kind of a wake-up call uh, for the Egyptian investors. Here is what the world is doing. We've been behind for many years. Let's catch up. So this kind of a wake-up call that the TNE partnerships uh, uh, make in, here in Egypt um, attracts the attention of university presidents who want to follow up with the world. Without the ranking, you can tell we're not really in the chart of the top thousand universities and so on. So we, as we are keen to follow up with the world, we see this as the kind of way for us to catch up with the world and become better. Uh, the culture of quality, the influence of that on our system, um, uh, also come as secondary reasons why we want to uh, engage with UKT and partnerships. That's really interesting, Bola. One, one more uh, question in this, this point, if I may, before I hand back to, to Chris. It's interesting as well what you're saying about the the demographic of, of students within the region as well, and the fact that, of course, I suppose a lot of your, you know, um, home students, your Egyptian students, will be accessing basically free higher education. Yeah. Um, is, a, is another reason, though, that you are keen to attract students from around the, the wider region to come to Egypt to, to study, uh, and, and indeed from from beyond Egypt? Uh, yeah, Egypt has traditionally been um, a study destination for Arab uh, uh, students, specifically in the Gulf area. But uh, I say has been traditionally meaning that it, it was actually uh, a hub or a study destination between 1950s and 1980s or uh, 1990s at the, at the best uh, estimation. But after that, um, the, the students in the Gulf area and in the Arab world started to go to Western countries. With the end of the Cold War, with the changes in the political, international political kind of landscape, um, Arab uh, students uh, started to go to the West. And now this, this is even changing, and the universities in Saudi and the Arab United Arab Emirates are picking up and becoming more attractive to their own students and students. Um, started saying, no, I can study now at home, uh, especially that some universities in Saudi, for example, are in the top 100, uh, and some universities in the Arab region are in the top 200 universities. So we're, they're backing up after 20, 30 years. Uh, but, and Egypt uh, has lost a lot of its um, glow as a study destination in the past 20 years, I can say. Uh, for reasons mostly are not related to us, uh, universities are still open to Arab students at a very low rate, especially public universities um, and so on. But again, as I said, they shifted their attention towards Western, Western world universities and then they came back home. But Egypt is now reviving this notion and the government is sponsoring a huge program called the Study in Egypt, Idris Fumasr, 
um, to promote the uh, Egyptian higher education and Egypt in general as a study destination. Estimations about total number of inbound mobilities, um, I guess it was somewhere between 70,000 and 80,000, so according to official um, uh, records. But a huge number of this is uh, still coming from the Arab, uh, the Arab world, of course. That's really interesting. Thanks, um, Bola. And even though I said that was, I was going to hand back to Chris. I do have one other, one other one that I would like to ask you at this stage. Um, and and probably actually is going off on a bit of a tangent. So I should probably leave it to later on. But I'm not going to because otherwise I'll forget it. Something else that we've been talking about with a few people um, have been the establishment of international branch campuses and the fact that yes. you know the big branch campuses, you know, that the that, uh, institutions would be establishing, be it in Malaysia or, or yeah. other, other places, seem to be on the wane slightly, certainly pre-COVID, you know, so the whole bricks and mortar, yeah. let's, let's up sticks and establish a campus overseas, seem to be starting to, as I say, you know, reduce somewhat in popularity. I'd be really interested if to hear from you about what the sort of what the mood music is in in Egypt, you know, I, I believe that there you do have there obviously are some branch campuses. I think Hertfordshire's got their campus, haven't they? But but I'm not sure whether you think that as a as a model is something maybe that will also increase even more, you know, yeah. over the next few years. Yeah, uh, I I think there is a. Uh, there is a terminology confusion in Tiani, if you like. Uh, so the word, the terminology branch campus is used differently in Egypt. And I can tell you hands on hearts, we don't have a full-fledged branch campus of almost any international university in Egypt. We never had one. Um, all of these are educational establishments. We call them uh, education providers. They don't have award degree awarding powers, or they may have some degree awarding powers. But they are not full-fledged campuses of other universities as such. They only host a number of programs, um, a few programs at the undergraduate or the graduate level. Uh, speaking of Hertford Trial, you mentioned, and Coventry University and um, other universities from outside the UK. Um, and that includes also long-standing uh, partnerships between, for example, uh, Coventry and the Arab Academy for Science and Technology. So these are all different forms of TNE. Uh, mostly uh, joint uh, degrees or dual degrees, um, but they're all around hosting a program or two or three, and they're not branch campuses. But then the problem happened with the new law that was enacted in 2018, called it all branch campuses. So everyone started to say, yeah, that's a branch of Coventry and that's a branch of... I mean, that might cause a lot of concerns to UK universities. So Liverpool, for example, say, we don't have a campus in Egypt. How come you're saying this? But then there's the terminology confusion is the problem here. Uh, I don't see uh, uh, full-fledged campuses as a new trend in Egypt happening any soon, I guess. Not because this is the, con the context that is, is not suitable, but because universities, especially in the UK, think it's a huge investment to open a full-fledged campus somewhere else. So they, they shift their attention towards starting with one program, two programs, three programs, it's it's a smaller investment, less risk and so on. And that's the most of the most of the TNE uh, establishments are like that here in Egypt now. OK, 
Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Paula. Over to you, Chris. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, we've, Judith and I have had conversations before about this, um, uh, the way T&E is understood in, in the UAE and Dubai in particular is also different from the way uh, it might be counted or recorded in, say, Malaysia. Um, and so, you know, what what is what yeah. is called a branch campus or understood as a branch campus? Um, um, I mean, uh, you know, that debate obviously exists, you know, even in, in, say, uniquely British universities in British cities, that you've got the difference between a city campus and a, and a camp, you know, a campus yeah. campus is the wrong term but as in you know you you there are differences in what camp it's yeah. not campi is it campi is not the plural of campuses so it's a it's an interesting interesting debate and i mean judith and i have talked about this particularly with the the, the last book um you know whether this this resurgence of you know having a physical presence somewhere else precisely because of covid um, you know, so rather than, you know, yes, there's been changing patterns of mobility, but, you know, whether or not we'd, we'd sort of start to see a, I guess, almost a resurgence, right, or, or a reinvigoration of, of uh, physical presence. And, you know, we've talked about different models that are, are emerging and have emerged in the last few years where you don't need a full campus. And obviously this, this dual or joint or, or some sort of collaborative um whether it's, you know, one-to-one partner or even, you know, a, a multiple. Um, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting area. I'm, I'm wondering, I was actually going to ask a bunch of different questions, but Judith's questions prompted me and your answers prompted me to think about something else. Whether, do you think there's a, an appetite or a, an opportunity for Egypt to export t so we're seeing that a little bit in in the in our region, right? We you know we we've got some evidence within Morocco, we've got some evidence, you know, yeah. um, in in various countries. And I'm I'm wondering, I'm I'm just wondering, you know, given given the the scale, given given the the, the potential capability, is this something that may be on the landscape or, or horizon, or, or or not not remotely? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> to uh, sum, sum it up. <laughs> Well, I mean, perhaps the big reason behind that is that uh, we here as higher education specialists talk about the quality problems that we have within our systems and the need to increase quality, accountability in higher education, autonomy and other things. We're far from, I guess, uh, being able to export quality programs. If you look at the UK, you'll see a different story. They talk about the research excellence, teaching excellence and, and, and so on. So and knowledge excellence and, and, and these initiatives, that's an advanced stage of, of higher education provision. But we're not there yet. Uh, that's why the UK is able to export education services mm. to other countries, because it's of good quality. If you look at Egypt, we used to export curriculum uh, of, of higher education and, and K-12 education between the 1950s and, uh, as I said, between the 1950s and the 1990s. So all Arab countries uh, around us used to take our programs as they are, and take teachers and university faculty, I mean professors, from Egypt to teach these programs and establish these programs in, in, in Arab countries. And in the UAE, we'll see examples of those Arab, uh, of those Egyptian faculty members who established departments and programs that were Egyptian. But that was when these countries uh, didn't have anything, if you ask me. Mm. But now they have this kind of you know international outlook, they have relationships and so on. So they import... Uh, UK education, if that's the right term, and board UK education, so why would they 
goal is education that needs a lot of enhancement itself, if that's uh, helpful to your question. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, very much so. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's essentially the answer I was in some way expecting. It, it's just, you know, it's often when you look at the sheer scale of something, you know, there, there's either, you know, a natural exportation growth model just because of the, the sheer capacity um, in it. Um, yeah. Or, as you say, it's a, it's, a, it's a fairly responsible internal review and saying, no, no, that's not, or, and indeed that's maybe not even the, the, the objective, right? It's, uh, um, but it's interesting, I think, before we come back to Judith, who I'm sure you know, will have you know, reflections on this, you know, Judith made the point about, you know, when you quoted the sort of the 20-year, um, you know, as a, as a sort of rough guide of, of T&E development. I mean, we, you know, and, and Judith brought up the Malaysia example. Obviously, Mal- Malaysia is an exceptionally well-established T&E hub, which is exporting, which is importing, which is growing, which is doing, I suppose, yeah. everything you can, you can think of. Um, it's just, it's interesting to see different paths. Obviously, the, the, the numbers don't compare. Like the, 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 the size of the sectors are, are, uh, are very, very difficult. But yeah, oh, thank, thanks for that. Sorry, Judith. Yeah, please, I'm sure you... you... Yeah, I, I just, uh, I want to be a bit provocative, actually, Bola, because in some ways, what you just described as well was that, you know, Egypt, for many, for many, many years you know, really was leading the way in terms of education and higher education. You can see where this is going, can't you? Um, but, and, and other countries obviously really needed to put in a lot of investment, a lot of time, had to do a lot of upskilling. Do you think Egypt had got a bit left behind for some reason? Had it got a bit complacent? Had other, other countries sort of almost come up on the outside and have really developed themselves so much that, that you know, they're, they're, they're almost overtaken what had happened in Egypt. Yeah. Is, is Egypt now sort of getting its act together a bit more, technical term? Uh, I, I, would, I would think about this differently. Look at the economic trajectory of these countries and our economic trajectory since uh, late 1990s. So we were involved in two wars in late 1990s, uh, and, and after that, regional wars that we supported. And, and uh, since the beginning of the 2000s, we started a long-term economic um, improvement program with the World Bank and, uh, and IMF. So we were in a different trajectory. We had problems that we needed to uh, give attention to, prices, inflation, other things, more of basic needs and livelihoods. But if you look at the trajectory that UAE, Saudi, and other Arab countries went through, at the same time, they were emerging. And they had this whole bit of, uh, about the oil-based economy and, and the, the transition from being tribal, on a tribal system to nation states, as we call them in social sciences. So they were on a totally different trajectory. So there is no way to compare in my, uh, in my view. The same for Malaysia as well. And I remember when I was in school in 1990s, we were thinking about these countries as the, the, the uh, uh, growing economically and as the model to grow economically. We were in a different economic state at that time. That's why we didn't grow. We did not prioritize higher education or education in general. Yeah, yeah that, I, I really understand that and appreciate that, uh, Bola, actually. Yes, obviously, in many ways. Um, I mean, but it is interesting to see but from my point of view, from the outside, as somebody who who hasn't has only ever visited Egypt in a 
in a you know in a in a holiday end capacity as opposed to anything to do with 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 work um but from the outside you know does does seem a very mature sort of higher education market you know and yeah. and, and society etc so it's just but it has been therefore then i think particularly interesting to see over the last few years that you know real development of what's happening with the as, as you've mentioned a number of the other institutions that have got strong partnerships in in yeah. egypt and um and i was talking to colleagues from uh, london south bank university the other mm -hmm. day and you look at the exceptionally yeah. good partnership that they've they've gotten had for many years you know british yeah. you know, with it with um with a, with your Egyptian institutions, so you know, I think that it's 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 um, it's good to see that kind of development as well. Yeah. I wonder whether I I might ask you a question then, because um, I think there are quite a lot of institutions in the UK in particular who are really keen to develop more partnerships with with um, with Egyptian institutions, you know, and I suppose. My question is, what what advice would you give some of these uh, UK institutions if they're looking to develop some partnerships in Egypt? Uh, well, who am I to advise uh, mighty UK universities with all their expertise and knowledge of international higher education and TNE? They almost invented all uh, notions, all new notions in international higher education. Um, I think knowing the context, not being an expert, but knowing the context here, uh, my advice would be for UK universities to spend a lot of time on uh, understanding the market first and not, you know, talk about the numbers. Because usually what happens is that the UK university will commission um, an international agency to conduct the, uh, market research. And they will tell them the size of the higher education sector is $2 trillion or so. I mean, I'm not sure about the number, but uh, they will just give them purely economic, in purely economic terms, what are the prospects for your partnership here in Egypt? And I was part of many of those studies, and I always said this, you have to understand the context as a whole, the kind of socioeconomic, cultural context, the pedagogical context in the universities. Uh, these nuances I, I, that they don't really realize, and they, they're keen about the enrollments, the size of the market, and, uh, and so on. So that would be my advice. And if you look at the partnerships that were successful, MSA with Greenwich, UE, as you mentioned, with the London South Bank and others. These agreements that lasted for two decades, uh, I guess, or, or, yeah. or more, were built around mutual understanding between the two institutions and they matured over the years and so on. So it doesn't happen tomorrow that Liverpool, for example, will come into Cambridge University mm. and have successful partnership yeah. uh, based on the report from BWC or I mean, whoever is mm. doing this kind of yeah. mathematic uh, uh, calculation of, of profit versus involvement in revenue and so on. I mean, th this comes up time and time again, doesn't it? That the 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 opportunity or the sheer student numbers and and many times different yeah. or various African nations are, are cited as well. Look at the sheer potential. Look at look at the you know the emerging youth demographic. You know, look, look at the the millions and millions of potential students. And you think, yeah. yes, that's that is factual. Th those people exist at that age bracket. Yes, that is that is true. Yeah. And by a forgiven value, they are potential students. But you know, the, one of the biggest mismatches of T and E is the price point. You know, it's the fact that exactly. the the student population, particularly as you say in Egypt, who are at, and you know served by a public good. Education is a public good. It's effectively, as you said, zero cost. You know, it's it's almost yeah. fully subsidized. 
what type of students are able to afford international, even even subsidized or scholarship or, you know, some sort of, you know, fee waiver? I mean, in your in your in your opinion, what sort of percentage? I mean, what what are these types of students, you know, that are are capable and then even willing? Um, This is something Judith and I have talked about in the past. And we've talked with students about, you know, why why do you go to a foreign university? What's what's your motivation? Um, Because the cost is significant for many, you know, many different categories. So, I mean, what's your yeah, your reflection on this? I guess you you mentioned the the right word, the willingness of the students to go there, especially when we have uh, very good public universities in STEM subjects, so engineering, science, and medicine, and so on. These are so good. In a study I conducted at the American University in Cairo, <clears throat> we found out that engineers, Egyptian engineers who studied in public universities, have the highest rate of passing the the fundamentals of engineering exam in the U.S., for example, mm. among other nations who study engineering. So that means the public universities uh, in STEM subjects are good. They produce good quality graduates. Uh, speaking of the class, uh, I mean the social, the social class that can afford TNE in Egypt, we're talking about the upper middle class to upper class kind of segment, if you like. Those are the ones who can afford to go to uh, TNE programs in Egypt that are offered um, at the price of about 10,000 sterling a year. Um, those can afford or actually would be willing to go to public universities, especially in medicine, engineering, and science specializations, but there are no places. That's the problem. They would want love to go there, but either they don't get the score because it's very competitive. You'll have to score 99.9% to get into Cairo University School of Medicine. Uh, how many people can get that score and how many uh, can get 90 and are still good and willing to study engineering, for example? So if they can afford it, and we're talking about the upper middle um, uh, to the upper classes, for example, they can afford it and then they will go. So the willingness is based on them not being able to access the place in the public system, either because of the score, I mean, mostly because of the score, uh, or because of lack of places. Cairo University School of Medicine will only take 100 students a year. We're talking about 3 million students mm. sector. It's huge. Uh, I hope that that's uh, answering your question. Oh, oh, it does, absolutely. And it's... I like this the second qualifier because I thought it was very interesting. A lot of TNE countries, um, the, the the sector develops because there there simply isn't the quality or the capability within the the domestic sector. Whereas, almost like the first part yeah. of your answer was the opposite, which is, oh, well, I'll go to TNE because I can't get into my own university. So, sort of conversely, yes. I, I'm taking a foreign degree as a yeah. second option because I can't get yeah. into. Um, and obviously, the, the qualifier then is also the the not just the score but also the places, which which as you know we were saying at the beginning. It's an elitist, it, it has, sorry, it's not elitist, it's an elite sector, like as in it's, it's a highly qualified, highly yeah, high quality. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I thought, thought that's, that was, that's really interesting, particularly given, given the sheer scale, right? It's, you know, um, sorry, Judith, but I think maybe you, you've got, you wanted to come in here. That, that was actually some, something I wanted to, to ask you about, um, Bola. I don't need to test me on geography here because I'm not very good <laughs> with in my in, in where I, wherever I'm living. I'm not really very very good, let alone other places in the world. Um, but just thinking of the shared scale of of Egypt as well, and obviously you know areas that are you know highly built up. You know, you know Cairo itself, the, the huge 
new economic developments that are taking place, I think, now just on the outskirts of Cairo, for example. But Egypt, and this is going to be one of those stellar sentences that I'm going to come out with, Egypt is a big place. <laughs> and it ranges, doesn't it? And so you've obviously you've got the north and, and the highly developed areas, yeah. but then you've got all areas all the way down, obviously the yeah. Nile as well. Um, I'm, I'm interested to, to hear from you as to whether there are specific different sort of needs geographically in terms of, of um, higher education and indeed whether as well um, students are very mobile themselves across Egypt because it, it's not as if you go from one town to another that yeah. is only 50 yeah. or 100 miles away, you know, you've got hundreds and hundreds of, hundreds of miles that you go yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm just yeah, I'm just interested to hear a little bit about that geographical spread and and what the, therefore the maybe some of the differing needs are and what some of the challenges. Yeah. But then potentially linking linking back to my last question, what some of the opportunities therefore then there might be, yeah. and again there might be for UK universities. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, um, even though Egypt looks like. Uh, it is a diverse market, as, as, you, as you just uh, mentioned, especially in terms of urban development. Cairo has areas where it's very, very well developed from urban uh, perspective. Um, higher classes, uh, people who can afford this type of education, and some other areas inside Cairo and other and other areas outside Cairo are totally different economic uh, background areas, if you like. But I would say uh, that. Internal mobility inside Egypt, if I can call it like this, uh, is very popular in higher education. So students from across all other governorates, um, uh, from other Egypt, from the northern sides of Egypt, they come to study in the center, usually in Cairo, because of the reputation that Cairo University and Trump's University, Alex University and those ones, have, again, for STEM subjects specifically, uh, medicine, uh, science, engineering, and so on. Um, so I wouldn't say that there are very distinguished needs in, uh, in other areas other than Cairo, in, in upper Egypt or so. Uh, it doesn't work like this in, in Egypt. And we're not, like, unlike the UK and Aberdeen, there their you know, need for petroleum engineering in, in, the, in uh, other countries, Glasgow, it's a, you know, it's an industrial city and so on. It doesn't, it's not like this in Egypt. Uh, the focus and the attention is on the center, the capital, where the best universities exist, whether private or public, by the way. So most of the private universities, and perhaps this was a mistake, the private establishments were all focused still in the capital, putting a lot of attention, a lot of pressure on students from all across Egypt to travel to the center to, to study either on public or private uh, universities. That's really interesting. Thanks, um, Bola. And, and I suppose it may be just linking a little bit into that. Um, you know, are, are, um, are Egyptian students also keen to study into Europe more? Thinking of where you are in terms of the location, yeah. you know, and on the Mediterranean Sea, obviously, you know, not that far from Cyprus, not that far from any yeah. areas within southern Europe, but are, are they also quite mobile from that point of view? Yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, I was surprised myself uh, when I looked at the results of the study I mentioned before we started the reporting on uh, education agents in Egypt and outbound mobility and so on. Uh, the biggest host of our uh, trans uh, 
outbound mobility students um, is United Arab Emirates, uh, Germany, Ukraine, Russia. So students are willing to go to these countries to study for higher education. Primarily, if you ask me, it's because they cannot keep up with the requirements of good public higher education here in Egypt, and they cannot either afford to pay private higher education. So they'll go to Germany because they can study engineering, even though they had 75% score in their uh, high school certificate, and it's almost free. So uh, Belgium, Netherlands, Germany, um, uh, all the Scandinavian countries, Norway, they'll go there because it's, it's free. That's the motive. And again, because they cannot afford to go to private universities in Egypt to study engineering or, or, or science. So yes, they are into Europe, but primarily not because they think there is good quality. Of course, in Germany, it's a good quality higher education. But the, 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 the main motive here is that it's a free, uh, it's a free system. They, they, they don't charge students and so on. Yeah, so similar, as you say, sort of similar sorts of systems in, in some yeah. ways to, to what you have in, yeah, in, yeah. in Egypt. Um, clearly, that's not something that would be drawing <laughs> them to the United of Kingdom. And they would be, uh, you would be surprised to know that, anyway. yeah, exactly, that you'd be surprised to know that they would be willing to pay education agents fees to get them into free higher education in Germany, for example. And I was really surprised to know this. I, if I were them, I would invest the money in joining the private, higher, private university in Egypt, but then they would be willing to pay a few thousand to an education agent to get them into a German university or a university in Norway or... Oh, it'd be interesting to hear a bit more about that, um, that bowler. But I suppose just, just one final comment from me on that last bit. I, I guess there's, there's a big difference, isn't there, playing a, a couple of thousand pounds to, yeah. for somebody to help you into a university and then you're there and then you don't have to pay so much for yeah. the next three or four years to, you know, having to pay anywhere northwards of nine, ten, eleven, twelve or however many thousands of pounds each yes. year. You know, so I suppose you know you can see you can see the reasoning behind it. Although it is it is quite um, quite an interesting model, uh, Chris. Oh, yeah, uh, no, I mean I, I I agree. I was I was just curious um, because in 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 many ways you know the 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 picture that you're painting of the of the sector has has many elements that are very familiar uh, in other T and E uh, environments, and then there's sort of a a uniqueness about it, which, you know, you've got a, a massive sector which is heavily subsidized, which students should be able to access without any trouble. And yet it's very competitive and so they need other avenues. Um, and therefore that's normally when t &E providers come in, right? They, they fill that gap in the market. Yeah. But obviously yeah. the, the, and it's in theory cheaper than them going, the student going abroad to country X or Y. Um, and that's, that's how the Malaysian market, you know, developed and, 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 uh, and became so successful. Um, and yet it's, it's, a, it's not a loophole, but it's a different pathway, right? It's, it's, it's saying, well, I can't go to my own, even though it's free, because I can't get in, it's too elite. I don't want to pay for that one. I don't want to pay for that one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to that one, which effectively is replicating my national provision just somewhere, somewhere else. I'm curious, do they come back? These students that go abroad for study, do they come back to work back in Egypt and sort of reinvigorate the Egyptian sector or do they, do they migrate out? Um, is it, do you have any sort of 
maybe not necessarily hard data, but you have any sense of what that what that uh, movement yeah. is like? Yeah, I I don't uh, I haven't come across data for for that, and we and this is one of the issues that also concern TNE. We don't have proper data collection and processing mechanisms to understand different trends. And TNE or student mobility, so we know how many students went out of Egypt. We don't know how many came back, so we don't have figures. But my own sense of that, having been in the business for twenty years, having been in the market, seeing other people, my sense, which is not at all based on figures or, or evidence is that most of them don't return. They find jobs in these countries or other countries, mostly in the Gulf. But they earn a degree from Germany, they work for a few years, and they go to UAE or Saudi or Kuwait to work and earn a lot more than they can make here in uh, here in Egypt. And uh, by the time they spend five years in a Western country, they will think, oh, it's going to be difficult for me to come back to my own context, so I better go to a place where I can practice my religious freely, but also it's a, a similar culture to mine. The Gulf is uh, mild, similar to Egypt, but still yeah, yeah. westernized in many ways. Yeah. So it's a kind of a middle ground. So let me go to UAE. It's good uh, halfway between the West and the East, and and it's uh, it's good. So that, that that's what happens. I can I can sense, but we don't have really um, studies or figures that look at uh, that look at uh, this sort of thing. So by, I mean, thank you for that. That's, it's interesting. I'm wondering just like the second half of that equation is the, the Egyptian students that make it to the public university. So these, the 99.9%, you know, great. Do they then stay and work in Egypt? Like as in, is the Egyptian sector working well for the Egyptian sector? And, and then the private market, you know, provides the pathways for the gaps or do these elite graduates also go <laughs> no i don't think so though it depends on the specialization so doctors medicine graduates they mostly graduate we have been uh, on shortage of doctors i think we have the highest percentage global globally one doctor for each ten thousand inhabitants where the global average would be one doctor for each a thousand or thousand and five hundred uh, people we uh, i think uh, I don't have the figure off my head right now, but a considerable percentage of all medicine graduates in the past 20 years have migrated outside of the outside of Egypt and they live in the UK or the US, Canada, other countries. So speaking of medicine graduates specifically, they don't stay. The majority of them go uh, either right after they uh, complete their degree or a few years after that when once they obtain master's. Uh, but other specializations, engineering and others, they might stay here because there are opportunities for them to work and and, uh, and, and stay here and so on. But then, I mean, we still don't have figures of that. So it's hard to paint a picture of sure, how sure. many stay and so on. Yeah. So speaking from uh, kind of my own estimations here, other than evidence. Yeah, no, I mean, that's 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 great. Yeah. Thank you. It's uh, Yeah, it was just more about, I was interested in your reflection of, you know, because the, the sector... Yeah, how how it, it's feeding itself and how it's you know it's obviously providing opportunity, yeah. but um, yeah, I was just just interested in that. So that's great. Thanks very much. Yeah, sorry, Judith. I think yeah, you wanted Cause to because there are quite a few other countries aren't there that um, have been keen to develop the TNE in country and 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 things such as branch campuses and others to try and retain that talent within yeah. the country itself. I, I guess you know there's potentially a bit of a naivety there because just because somebody studies somewhere doesn't mean they're therefore they're not 
going to go, they might be even keener to, to, to yeah. go somewhere yeah. else. But um, yeah. one thing I am um, keen to, to ask you about is, uh, is, is what, what, what do you, and this is going to have to be a personal reflection, I appreciate, but how do you think other institutions in Egypt view TNE? So how do they view other universities coming in and delivering courses? And I suppose if they do it in partnership, then it's a partnership, isn't it? And so they would one would imagine naturally it would be something it would be quite a positive dynamic there. Yeah. But yeah. I'd just be interested to hear your reflections on, you know, other stakeholders within Egypt themselves, yeah. what their views are of the whole TNE landscape. Um, yeah, interestingly, that was part of uh, of a study I conducted three years ago with a colleague from the American University in Cairo, and it was around the view and value of TNE in the eyes of stakeholders in Egypt, um, and it had another part that talked about the impact and so on. And the, the results that came out of the study uh, was all around stakeholders in Egypt and generally seeing TNE as a mystical solution, as a magical solution enhance the current system. They think if, not, if one university is hosting a program of quality um, from another country uh, that's known for quality, like the UK, for example, we will learn a lot from that and we can replicate. So the kind of replication um, idea came out a lot and the, most of them said we can replicate the model, we can uh, try and do the same for our programs and we can look at how the syllabus is written, how students are taught. I mean, look at how the the students, the, the, the professors um, uh, look at the readings and assign readings to students and so on. So the kind of replication notion was mentioned quite a lot. Uh, and that's how TNE is seen here. It's a good example. Let's look at it, try and imitate, replicate in a positive way, of course, I mean, um, and learn from it. And that was the kind of the dominant uh, view of stakeholders here in Egypt. Some or minor views around uh, whether it's the right for us from a national point of view to import different education ideology, get it in and so on. But that was not the kind of majority uh, views. They all saw TNE, well, that's, a, that's one of the magics that they've come. Come here, we can replicate the model, we can create a similar program and learn from it and so on. Uh, that's what I observed in the study. That's really interesting. Thanks, um, thanks Paula. Yeah, so it's... Uh, so, I, I mean, it's a, it's a very complex picture, isn't it, I suppose, let's face really? it, depends where you sit sit within it. I feel as though we've probably grilled you enough hmm. today. You can probably tell by the barrage of questions throwing at you <laughs> how how interested we are in this. And I personally, as well, really? say, have, have learned a massive amount about about what is happening in Egypt. And stop being modest and shaking your head. You, you it, it's, uh, um, But I do feel that probably we pigeonholed you slightly because we do know that you've got a wealth of experience beyond a number of the things that we talked about today. So we'd be delighted if you would, would come back and uh, oh. and talk to us again, not only more on this topic and on Egypt and on your other studies, but also, you know, more broadly what your thoughts are on, on TNE. But I would like to ask you just one final question. Um, and it's get get, sort of get a ready big for question, it. But it can have, yeah, get it get can ready have for it. Prepare. Get ready. It's it's a yeah, big question. Little, 
can have a little answer, but it's going to be quite a big question. Where now for international higher education? What do you think, you know, post-COVID and all of the things that have happened for yeah. the UK, post-Brexit, yeah. all of these, what do you think is going to happen in probably two or three sentences, Bola, no pressure, in international higher education? Over to you. Yeah, 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 sure. What I see in the next uh, 10 to 15 years, students being able to study for, the, for, their own, for one degree in multiple countries in two or three sentences, like you ask. So start, start your degree here in Egypt, engineering in the second year, go to the UK, and the third or the fifth year can go to Spain because there are credit articulation and transfer agreements across Europe between the US and Canada and Egypt, and this is going to come. It's inevitable, it will happen. It may seem far-fetched now, but it's, I'm seeing uh, uh, science for this to happen, and it's going to happen. So multiple uh, countries delivering one degree for one student, multiple institutions, uh, for one degree is something that's, uh, that I see coming uh, coming in. That's a pretty good answer, don't you think, Chris? I think, you know. <laughs> I do. And it's, it's interesting because it, it raises issues of collaboration, consortia, mobility, yeah. Yeah. online degrees, accreditation. I think somebody should write a book about this. <laughs> you know, I think they should. <laughs> no, that's... And I think, and I think that they should certainly go and read a particular chapter. Absolutely, in, uh, in yeah. that book, yes, written by certain <laughs> Bola Ibrahim. No, thank you so much for joining us today, Bola, and we really hope that you will uh, join us again uh, in the future. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Uh, I learned quite a lot from you uh, both today, and uh, yeah, I'd be happy to come back soon. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks.